Wissington Falls News Review Now with the Oom is on the air. Welcome to Blissington Falls News Review Now for Tuesday, August 6th. I'm Trizzy, and this is... Ume, I'm Ume. I love you very much. I want to get a letter or an email from you. Ume. Ume, it's August already, and it's very hot here in Blissington Falls. I want to watch fireworks. There are fireworks in summer. That's right. Sometimes I hear them at night, and they go boom, 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 boom. Yes, summer means fireworks, but I'm starting a new annual tradition. I don't know what annual tradition means. It means something special you do once every year. Like celebrate a holiday. Or eat ice cream. You eat ice cream a lot more than just once a year. You eat ice cream all the time. Eating ice cream cools my tummy. It is sweet and delicious and oh, cold. Oh, Ume, you're getting us way off topic now, you silly sweet boy. My new annual tradition is Trizzyween. In years past, I've celebrated Halloween from the 1st of September to October 31st. Do you know why I made Halloween so long, Ume? Because trick-or-treating is fun. It is, but the real reasons are, one, I love Halloween, and two, Universal Studios Japan starts its Halloween Horror Nights, or Surprise Halloween event, on Saturday, September 7th this year, and it runs through Monday, November 4th. So each year, I timed my own Halloween season to coincide with theirs, Hmm. especially since visiting USJ during the surprise Halloween period is one of my favorite things to do. Me too. This year, we're going three times for a total of four nights. So for the creepiest, kookiest time of year, I decided to get a head start. Don't run. That means Trizzy Ween, a three-month celebration of horror movies, comics, and TV shows. Or just anything weird or mysterious that catches my vampiric fancy. I forget you're a vampire sometimes. Sunlight is not my friend, Ume. But you sure are. I love you. And I love you. By the way, Ume, did you know USJ's Hotel Albert, the completely immersive horror experience of visiting a haunted abandoned hotel in all its eerie elegance, sold out last year? I did not know that. That's why they're repeating it this year as the powered-up Hotel Albert 2 and adding a horror-themed restaurant to their Otona Haruin, or adult Halloween festivities. I want to go to a pizza restaurant, though. If there are ghosts there, they should be nice and share their pizza. They should. But I'm not a ghost. I am a real dog. A sweet dog. Let's jump right into Trizzy Ween with a little feature our expert team of undead frighteners has prepared for us on the topic of things that scared the poop out of little Trizzy. First up is Jennifer, a comic book story written by Bruce Jones and illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. Originally published in Creepy Comics number 63, cover date July 1974, Little Trizzy first read it as a reprint in Pacific Comics' Bernie Wright's Master of Macabre, number two, published way back in 1983. I bought it for a dollar at a coin shop that was going out of business, and I remember losing a lot of sleep over this one. Gosh, I'm talking way too much, aren't I, Ume? I wasn't listening, sorry. Did you cover your ears? I thought you were going to talk about scary things. We are, but if you want, you can go in the next room and I'll call you when it's over. Okay. Go play with your sisters and your little brothers. Call me when you're finished. I will. And now here's your host, Little Trizzy.
sometimes I really hate you when you call me little Trizzy. I don't want to grow up to be you, you know. I don't want to grow up to be some mean I don't want to grow up to be happy. And also a model. But anyway, like old Trizzy was saying while being an one time my dad took this friend of mine and me to a coin shop that was going out of business and they had some boxes of comics they were selling, only they weren't a dollar each like Trizzy said. They were like 50 cents each. God, she's so stupid. So they didn't have like very many good comics, but they did have these comics by Bernie Wrightson. And I knew who that was because he drew that Creepshow comic I like to read in Walden books all the time, but it would give me nightmares. Look, this is embarrassing, but I might as well tell you, I don't like horror comics, but I'm always looking at them anyway. And my mom gets kind of mad with me because then I can't sleep and I have to have a light on and I put my head under the covers. And yeah, I sleep with a lot of stuffed animals, and no one knows this, so you better not tell anyone. I will get so mad, and then you won't get to come over and play in television and stuff, and I have all the games. I have like Tron, and Utopia, and Burger Time, and Donkey Kong, and Bomb Squad, and Pitfall, and like lots. Lots and lots. So you probably think I'm a chicken now, but these comics are really scary sometimes. Some of them are totally bloody and gross. But I love how Bernie Wrightson does all these lines and stuff, like etchings and old books, sort of. And I like to copy the way he draws. He did like Batman stories too, and they look really cool and dark and mysterious. So when I saw these comics were totally full of his stories, and they were like really cheap, I decided to buy them. I was not ready for the story in Bernie Wright's and Master of the Macabre, number two though, the one called Jennifer. It's written by this guy Bruce Jones, who also has his name on some of the other comics we bought at that store. But anyway, it starts like with this guy in the woods. And one thing that's really cool about Bernie Wrightson is he draws these daytime scenes and forests and woods and stuff. They're so scary, even though they're not even at night and nothing is really happening. Like in Cycle of the Werewolf, that Stephen King book, like all slanting sunlight coming through leaves and more dry leaves. You can almost hear the wind whispering and the leaves crinkling. And it's just like Halloween afternoon in the cemetery near my house only it's a picture. So this guy telling the story is like out hunting and he sees this other old guy about to kill this little girl with an axe, so he shoots the guy. And that's kind of scary too because it's already like a murder and already the main guy's like, well, he's not thinking right or something because you have to tell people about murders even if it's you who did something bad like that. It's the law. But then he sees the girl, and she has like these big black eyes, kind of like a bug's, or maybe an octopus's, or a squid. And, and these really big teeth, like Bugs Bunny, only they're thicker, and there are more of them, and they're all strange and gross. And Oh, she's like warty and stuff, and kind of lumpy. So the guy's scared of her, but he can't stop himself from taking her home. And then things get really gross. Pretty soon, he's like thinking about her all the time, but his wife and kids are like, we don't like her, and then something happens to the family's cat, and everyone leaves the guy, and he's just alone with Jennifer, uh, which is her name, and his name is Jim whatever. A lot of times in a story like this, you would find out Jennifer's really nice, and everybody's just being mean to her because they're, you know, mean. 
bullies or whatever, but she just stares and does sick stuff, and finally this guy's losing his mind even, and he hires someone from like a circus to come and take her away after he's like lost everything and this really bad thing happens, so then he has to take her to the woods and oh my gosh, I hate even talking about this story, it's just like the, the scariest comic book story ever. Even that afternoon, after my friend and I got finished reading the comics, I was like, there is no way I want this comic at my house. I was thinking, like, Jennifer would, like, come out of the comic somehow, and I know that's dumb and sounds like something a baby would believe, but I couldn't help it. And so I gave that comic to my friend, and for, like, the next three or maybe even four nights, I slept with my light on, and I was so worried and scared the door to my room would start peeping open slowly, and little by little, it would be Jennifer opening it, and she would be in my room, and she would be there to stay. This sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I hate old Trizzy for making me tell you all this stupid stuff. I mean, I like Halloween and trick-or-treating and all, but I hate Trizzy Ween, so I'm stopping right now. I'm not doing this anymore. Old Trizzy. I know you had a very vivid imagination back in the day. I don't know if it was from growing up next door to a cemetery or what, but we had peach trees in our backyard that used to scare me half to death because they looked like bones. Skeletons standing around waiting to clutch me and choke the life out of me whenever I went outside to play. And while we're talking about Halloween scary things, last week marked the 40th anniversary of Fangoria magazine. The first issue of Fangoria saw print on July 31, 1979. It swiftly became the leading horror media news and celebration magazine, and while its subject matter meant I didn't turn to it nearly as often as I did its sister magazine, Starlog, now that I'm a vampire and a horror fan, I completely adore Fangoria. I'm so thrilled it's still around, still covering the horror genre with the same love and fun attitude. Happy birthday, Fangoria. Here's to hundreds of more years of undead life and horror genre thrills. Trizzy Ween's going to be a lot of fun this year, but let's return to the sunlit world of what we believe to be reality from, unseen by most, the underworld, a place just as real, but not as brightly lit. To fun. Ume, you can come back now. I was right here. You were being scary. Did you hear Mommy say scary things? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know this is just make-believe, right? I'm fine. I tried to make sandwiches for everyone, but I kind of made a mess in the kitchen. 
I'm sorry. Ume, don't you worry. We'll clean that up together, and tonight we'll watch John Carpenter's The Thing, okay? Promise? Absolutely promise. Yeah, I love the Spiderhead monster. He's funny. He is. And now let's look at something major in the works involving Kay and Yuri, the lovely angels. Dirty pair. That's right, Ume. They're also known as the Dirty Pair. And then some Jack Kirby-related news from Ava DuVernay and Tom King, who are hard at work on the DC Universe live-action film New Gods, based on Kirby's fourth-world concepts and characters. Isn't this exciting? Hold my hand. Okay, here we go. Operatives for the World Welfare Works Association, Triple WA, codenamed the Lovely Angels, but better known as the Dirty Pair, will finally blast their way onto Region A1 Blu-ray here in Japan this December 18th. A huge box set limited edition celebrating the 40th anniversary of Dirty Pair is on the way, and it features all the original TV episodes, the original video series, the theatrical release, and straight-to-video movie, and even the 90s reboot Dirty Pair Flash. It's the 40th anniversary of the light novel series, not the TV show, which aired in 1985, in case you didn't listen to our previous broadcasts. But I'm sure you did. Yuri and Kay made their first appearance in the world in prose format with author-creator Haruka Takachiho's Dati Pe no Daibokin, or The Dirty Pair's Great Adventure in 1979, illustrated by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, and a legend was born. The Blu-ray set comes in a normal edition, a first limited edition, and a couple of other Amazon Japan exclusive versions with bonuses I can't figure out. There's definitely a 100-page triple WA premium file booklet and a three-way limited special design box, but a few of the other features have defeated my abilities. It's 1,508 minutes of dirty pair action and destruction on 12 discs with a 2K scan from the master positive film as opposed to the original negatives, but it's been fully restored with dust and scratches and fading removed under supervision by the original director and staff. Plus, brand new audio commentary from the original K voice actor Kyoko Tongu and original Yuri voice actor Saeko Shimazu. But just as hiring trouble consultant team 234, the lovely angels, usually comes at a high price and collateral damage, this amazing set will cost you. The normal edition is 3,294 yen or about $347.22 by the current exchange rate, and the Amazon original first release limited edition with the three-way spine storage case retails at a whopping 55,000 yen, or $512.98 United States dollars. I haven't been able to determine if this release will feature English subtitles or any other languages for that matter, but it's a Japan-only Blu-ray, so they're not exactly obligated to provide those, are they? You can still play it in your North American Blu-ray players, of course. There's that consolation, at least. 
And here's hoping now that these remastered copies exist, some smart anime licensor in an English-speaking market will dare bring Kay and Yuri to their customers, even though few, if any, are likely to survive. But hey, the Dirty Pair always get the job done, no matter what. Dirty Pair finally arrive on Blu-ray this December 18th. Are you excited, Ume? I am, Bazao Pachow. I am Dirty Ume. I will solve any problem for you, Mommy. Thank you, Ume. Who's dark side, she said, and smiled in her special way. Dark side, she said, you know I love you. Who's dark side, she said, and tried to look the other way. Eyes gave her away, you're right. As anyone who's anyone knows, I am a major Jack Kirby fan. It doesn't matter what, really. If Jack Kirby had a hand in it, I love it. He was one of the first comic book artists I was aware of by name, and while I know there are some heartbreaking aspects to his story, the man himself and Roz Kirby both fill me with love and admiration and comics-loving glee. My all-time favorite Jack Kirby creation is his Fourth World Saga, and most especially the New Gods comic. I was so delighted to learn none other than Ava DuVernay, who is one of the most exciting and powerful filmmakers working today, had signed on to direct a New Gods movie. On July 31st, DuVernay took to Twitter to talk about New Gods with an Ask Ava event, started with a tweet simply stating the obvious, Dark Side is... I can't recommend wading through the comments on that thread, but luckily for those of us who don't have extensive blockchains, The Hollywood Reporter immediately ran a story on the news DuVernay released there, thanks to Graham McMillan, who must have a stronger constitution than I do. First, the female Furies are in the movie. This is amazing news. I love the Mr. Miracle comic almost as much as the New Gods, but Barda is my absolute number one among the Fourth World characters. And, of course, she originally led the Furies. DuVernay is at least as much a Barda fan as I am and told Twitterers and comics fans she was looking forward to the Furies so much. So am I, so am I. DuVernay deliberately avoided casting questions, although from the quick glimpse I took of the Twitter thread before fleeing for my life, she received a number of suggestions, and at this point tells us she's keeping her mind open. I think we should do the same as well, to that end. I haven't read Tom King's Mr. Miracle comic book miniseries because I tend to avoid any and all comic book versions of the fourth world outside of Kirby's. I've been burned too many times. On the other hand, I've always enjoyed the adaptations into animation and toys. You know, DC Superpowers, the toy line, which went through three series starting in 1984 and ending in 1986. This featured Kirby-designed characters and vehicles, plus a 12-issue limited comic book he penciled. This era saw the addition of Darkseid as a villain to the Super Friends in Super Friends The Legendary Superpower Show, which aired new episodes from September 8th to October 27th, 1984, and continued as the Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians, with new segments running from September 7th, 1985 to October 26th, 1985. I'm not sure why, but one of Darkseid's huge deals here was not finding the anti-life equation, but instead was marrying Wonder Woman. Speaking of legends, Frank Welker provided Darkseid's majestic speaking voice, as well as Calabax. René Aubergenois 
portrayed Desaad. Darkseid also applied villainy in the Superman animated series from 1996 to 2000 and the Justice League Unlimited series from 2001 to 2004. And these shows had Amr Janois reprising Desaad and voicing Steppenwolf. The DC animated universe used a lot of Kirby storylines and concepts. Darkseid kind of appeared on the Smallville show, but I never watched that, and honestly, I have zero interest in it, so I won't even talk about it. Okay, back to the present. In the Twitter discussion, DuVernay assured us Tom King is a genius, and while we often let that word slip all too easily, I have watched When They See Us on Netflix, and let me tell you, that was one scorching achievement that has me hotly anticipating and trusting in DuVernay and her judgment. It's her call, and I'm glad. If anything, I'm even more hyped about the potential for new gods. If they just leave DuVernay and King alone, there's a chance for something equaling or maybe even surpassing Avengers Endgame. At least that's my optimistic hope. With When They See Us, DuVernay showcased confident storytelling and cinematic chops, and knowing she's such a fan of Kirby and comics, and in particular Big Barda, places her New Gods movie right in the center of my heart, where it has potential to achieve that rare level of enshrinement I've reserved for Kirby's comics, Star Wars, Star Trek, Labyrinth, and Mad Max Fury Road. This is certainly no masterpiece of objective journalism here. This is pure fangirl gusher, and I don't mind that at all. If you can't get excited about the potential for wonder and fun when discussing comics and fantasy movies, then I'm not sure why you'd even be interested in those things in the first place. New Gods is a mammoth story now having grown beyond Kirby's original eons and generation-spanning legend, whether I've approved of every little addition or rendition or adaptation or not. As far as comic book stories go, it's a Mount Everest summiting level challenge. But I know if anyone can pull this off, it's Ava DuVernay. She's got the love, she's got the skills, and I, for one, am eager and thrilled to see her take on Jack Kirby's greatest creations. I'll keep you updated, and you can't stop me because every time something major comes our way from Apocalypse or New Genesis, I'm going to be right here like Metron, taking it all in from my Mobius chair. dark side, she said, and smiled in her special way. Who's dark side, she said. And boom, 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 who's dark side, she said. And then I am Ume, who's dark side, she said. Boom, 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 oh, boom. Ume. Remember Colleen and Greg, America's Sweethearts? They were contestants on the first season of Survivor, the one eventually won by the guy cast as the villain of the moment, Richard Hatch. Colleen Haskell came back after being the 11th person voted off the island to take on the thankless role of love interest in a Rob Schneider movie and guest starred as a character named Colleen in an episode of That 70s Show. She's retired into private life. I respect that decision, and whatever she's doing, I hope it's fulfilling. 
Then came more Survivor, American Idol, Surreal Life, The Osbournes, and reality TV became a genre unto itself. Maybe we can blame Survivor, which actually made for compelling television viewing, or maybe the culprit is MTV's The Real World, which was so massive even I got sucked into watching it for a time way back in 1992 or 1993. It all blurs together. But the early aughts were rife with reality series and spin-offs and commentary on reality series like X-Force Ecstatics, which started in the 90s as a follow-up to New Mutants, where Rob Liefeld's creations became so popular they supplanted the original team. I wasn't reading very many comics in the early 90s because I was too busy watching the real world. But I do know Liefeld and his babies Cable, Domino, Deadpool, and all the rest started a trend of their own, comics that were essentially about other comics. The way we remember it is fans wanted grim and gritty teams of heavily cross-hatched characters with lots of belts and straps and trench coats and oversized guns. And I'm not knocking it, this was just the style. Things come into style, go out of style. By the time the year 2000 rolled around and Colleen and Greg were getting it on the Survivor Island, Marvel was taking their comics lines in some new directions under new editor-in-chief Joe Quesada. So they went out and got former Vertigo editor Alex Alonzo, and Alonzo let Vertigo writer Peter Milligan and artists Mike and Laura Allred take over X-Force and turn it into a commentary on typical uncanny X-Men dramatics and angst, but also a savage and often hilarious and violent critique of fame culture and reality TV shows. From team leader Mr. Sensitive, his own name a jab at emo singers and wounded celebrity heartthrobs, to You Go Girl with her instantly dated code name, and Tyke Alakar the Anarchist. Oh, and Dupe, a green spud vaguely resembling Slimer from Ghostbusters. They were mutants and subject to all the Marvel mutant metaphors, only they acted many of them out overtly. And they were also in-universe reality stars, a controversial team of heavily marketed celebrity heroes born of a televised massacre. And wow, they did die a lot in this comic, even beloved characters. While Milligan's scripts provided satire and sincerity, the tragedies were often real and with fully realized aftermaths and emotional devastation, Mike and Laura Allred's art doubled the knowing take by trading on the very artificiality of the medium. Their art stood out and continues to stand out on the newsstand among all the photo-referenced or even photo-traced hyper-realism from your John Cassidy's and your Alex Ross's and your Greg Land's in the same way a Jack Kirby or John Romita Sr. story might in a reprint book surrounded by your Neil Adams's and your Barry Windsor Smith's and your Val Merrick's or Frank Bruner's or whoever. Heavy contrast. The realistic art wants to fool you into thinking you're watching a movie and tends to take away some of the reader's imagination and thought input. It's literal and on the nose, the equivalent of one of those online arguments about what it would take to be a real-life Batman or a dissertation on how Superman's powers would work according to science. And this is a valid approach, but I find no magic in it. The Allreds, on the other hand, let you know they're neither fooled by the medium nor are they fooling you. They're having fun. All comic book art, no matter how it's rendered, is two-dimensional stuff, pretending to be three-dimensional after all. Characters are trapped within rectangular or even oddly shaped frames, and Dupe actually seems to know he's in a comic. 
It's all artificial, and the Allreds approach it playfully because it's inherently absurd. They aren't ironically distancing themselves with cold and almost inhuman feathering like you'd find in a Charles Burns or Dan Klaus comic, the... Laura Allred's colors are too vivid for that, too warm, and Mike Allred's line work is too open and appealing, plus his characters cavort way too much. It's as if the Allreds looked at Roy Lichtenstein's theft of techniques like feathering and line screen printing and said, we're stealing it back. And here it is, back again, in giant size, Ecstatics number 1, dated September 2019. It focuses on the legacy of fan fave, both real-world and in-world, Edie Sawyer, or You Go Girl, by centering on her daughter, Katie Jones, who thinks she's You Go Girl's little sister. Katie, like the rest of us, lives in a world where you don't even need a CBS TV network show to become an idol. You can stream your life story. You can eliminate all the gatekeepers and just put that video right there on YouTube, garner millions of views, and make enough money to burn yourself up in a powerful McLaren F1 sports car. Becoming a dead ringer for her mom while trying to extricate herself from the machinations of the story's villains, who are led by long-thought-dead zeitgeist, plus some of the original series survivors like Mr. Sensitive and Dupe, Katie willfully rejects the fame and fortune her sister-slash-mother once desperately courted. It reads like a later issue of their ecstatic series, almost as if Roughly 15 years haven't even passed. Milligan's sense of satire remains intact, and if anything, Mike Allred's art, always wonderful, has gotten even better over the years. It looks almost the same, with maybe the colors a little more modeled and the ink lines slightly finer and more controlled. And everything I said about the first series continues to hold true here, but there's the added element of change. The reality TV celebrity culture stuff isn't new and shocking anymore. We're way more taken aback when someone like Colleen Haskell rejects fame and fortune. The idea of someone rejecting membership in the ecstatics may not have even crossed our minds back in 2002 or 2003, but hey, it was so new then we probably didn't even realize you might have a choice. Or do you? Giant Size Ecstatics asks that question and then gives its own answer, and you can figure it out for yourself because I know you're dying to read it now, right? You and I may not need a TV show about our daily lives and the constant social media beefs and brouhaha's that accompany that sort of existence, but you do need this incredible one-shot that leads directly into next year's The Excellent from Milligan and the Allreds. I know I do. And this has been Blissington Falls News Review Now for Tuesday, August 6, 2019. Did you enjoy this show, Ume? Yes, I like the part where I went boom, 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 boom. Good, I'm glad. Good night, everyone, and try to have some kind of tomorrow. Ume sang and smiled in his special way. Who's Edie? He sang boom, 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 boom. Good night, everyone. I love you. Boom, 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 boom.